So we are continuing in our series titled The Servant King. Would you join me in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30? They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for not one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, he asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, real relationships, true ones, deep ones, uh, they change us. Uh, whether it be friendship, coworkers, marriage, uh, all real relationships change us. 
Um, I think for a moment, um, sometimes people ask me, uh, Nate, who do, you, who do you cheer for? What's your teams? And I always, I mean, honestly, I'm a little embarrassed, um, but I'm a Cubs fan, a Bears fan, and then also a Lakers fan. And the reason is, is because my best friend growing up down the block got me into all of those teams. So it's his fault. It's not my fault. Relationships, right, they change us. Um, I can tell you right now, if I open my Spotify playlist right now, my loved songs, my liked songs, uh, they're deeply influenced by my kids, okay? I like songs because they like these songs, not because I ever would introduce them because they've changed me. Or think about marriage. Um, I remember two weeks into being married to Amanda, and I never realized that the bath mat outside of the shower was not for drying off. It was made notice to me that you dry off before you get out of the shower, then you stand on the bath mat. Now, now I know, we got some debates. But anyway, um, more than that, Amanda, right, my, my wife, she's changed me and, and vice versa. Well, we're in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. We've been here since September, and we saw a couple weeks ago um, Jesus unveil this confounding identity uh, that he's a king, but he's also a king with a cross. And this king uh, has this invitation to follow him. And in Mark 8, 34, Jesus said this, If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, if you're in a relationship with me, uh, I will call you to a completely counterintuitive way of living. It will turn your life upside down. Down. And in our passage today, there are four ways that we see this life lived out. Four ways that Jesus will radically change your life, turn it upside down. And lastly, we also see there's one source for living it out. So, let me pray. We'll get in. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the passage opens and Jesus is on the road with his disciples and uh, they're talking about some things and Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about? And I, I don't know what it was like, but probably the disciples were like, hey, don't say it, don't say it. They, they, they stay quiet. And why is that? Well, the passage lets us know that they were arguing about who's the best, who's the greatest. Jesus knew that. And so they've been arguing about that for a while. And just to be honest for a moment, uh, we are all like that. Each one of us, our instinct, our innate nature is to put ourselves first, to be the greatest. Now, listen, we would never be so brash as disciples. We're much more sophisticated than that. We have found ways to make it look nice and to cloak it in various things, but let's be honest for a moment. For some of us, it's, it's to be the greatest in the classroom. It's the GPA. For others of us, it's, it's to be the greatest socially. It's the popularity contest. Uh, and that might be uh, both in your school or it might be on your InstaFace account. And I know, I just murdered InstaFace, but I'm just being honest. You want the likes. Uh, for some of us, it's... It's the executive position in the boardroom. We want to be at the highest. 
Now, some of you might say, that's not really me. I don't want to be the greatest, but let me ask you this. How do you feel about those who are the highest? Are you filled with enmity? Are you filled with hostility? Because that says something about where we are. Listen, however we shade it, let me just submit to you that there is some level of seed in our hearts that is one of self-promotion. And Jesus says, if you're in a relationship with me, I want to challenge that. I want to change that. So in verse 35, Jesus responds this way. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is flipping the script. Uh, he is submitting that to pursue, to uh, the ambition to pursue position or status is not his way. True greatness is not marked in this kingdom, as one author put it, by the positions we hold, but by those we humbly serve. Listen for a moment. True greatness is not measured by the initials before your name. True greatness is not conditioned upon upward mobility. True greatness has to do with leveraging your life in the service of others in the name of Christ. One pastor put it this way, whether one has position or not has very little to do whether they are a great man or a great woman. And here's what that means. This morning, think about this. It doesn't matter your station in life. Jesus is subverting everything you thought you knew about greatness. Jesus is saying, listen, whether you are a pastor who gets up front and speaks week to week, or you are in back with the children, or whether you are a grandma, or you're an implementer or tentacle services at a tech firm, whether you are a teenager, or a stay-at-home mom, whether you are a student, or whether you are a doctor, greatness does not have to do with position. But greatness has to do, as one pastor put it, the quality of life in Christ that one humbly offers to those in their midst. And listen, Francis Schaeffer, he put it this way, and this is, this is, this is so beautiful. He says this, there, there is... There are no little places and there are no little people in God's kingdom. Do you hear that? There are no little places and there are no little people in God's kingdom. Greatness comes not from putting oneself first, but rather humbly offering yourself in service. Jesus continues and he grabs a child, puts the child in the middle the child, and he says in verse 37, whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, this may sound strange for us. Uh, in our moment, uh, you know, if you read the books, we kind of live in a child-centered culture. But back then, children were not valued. Not until they got to a part where they could actually add something to be functional, like get busy, do something, right? 
How about the family? And so when Jesus grabs a child and puts in the middle, what he is suggesting is this. We must learn to relate to others like that. And that changes every relationship because think about for a moment, when you show up in a room, oftentimes what do we do? We look and we go, wait, who's the most well-connected here? Or we might say, who's the most beautiful here? Or we might say something like, who's the most popular? Because what we do, we do a cost-benefit analysis. And see, here's the deal. If you relate to the person who's well-connected, that might lead to a promotion. Or if you lead, if you build a relationship with someone who has beauty or has a social status that you don't have, it might lead to you being elevated. But Jesus is saying true greatness throws out the cost-benefit analysis. And says you need to learn to welcome the unimportant in the eyes of the world. Let me ask you for a moment, how would this change your life? Putting this into practice, how would it change, for example, as we meet week to week in city groups, how would it change how you relate to them? How might it change where you look when you're at school? who you might actually go towards and move towards? Or how about at work? Or in your neighborhood? Jesus is suggesting that that this is the path of denying self, of taking up one's cross. It it flips the script. Uh, John begins to tell Jesus about an encounter he had with a rogue exorcist. That's a weird term to say, but uh, suffice to say in verses 38 to 41, um, there's something that was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he's not one of the 12. And John says, he told him to stop. And the reason why is because he's not one of us. He's not following us. And right here again, we see how different, or perhaps how similar we are to John. Because think about it for a moment. Last week we were in a section where the disciples were not able to cast out a demon. And now John's found someone who's actually casting out a demon. But what's happening? It's comparison. It's envy. I remember uh, early on in the life of Redeemer City, uh, I had friends who were planting churches and I would go to conferences and I would hear about people planning churches, and I would hear updates. And it was always the worst part because, I mean, to be quite frank, it seemed like God was doing so much there and so little where I was. It was so hard to not compare. In fact, I would just say I was envious. Isn't it interesting how this hits us? It's really hard to rejoice with others when we compare. How about you? I, you know, I assume for some of you, it's, it's not perhaps competition or comparison in the church, though it might be. But let me ask you this. Who do you find it hard to rejoice with? Maybe it's the one who get, so-and-so got the raise or got the spouse or the kids or someone got the reward. 
Or perhaps it's more insidious. It's the moment in which something bad happens to them, and you wouldn't say it out loud, but there's a level of, okay, finally something happened that didn't, wasn't good for them. Jesus corrects John in verse 39. He says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. And reminds John afterwards that even the smallest cups of water offered will not be forgotten. Do you see this, how this changes things? Following Jesus, being in relationship to Jesus, the way of the king is not the path of selfish ambition or self-promotion, but self-denial. Jesus continues. There's more to be said about what it means to follow him. Look at verses 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I wonder... I wonder if you're uncomfortable at this moment. To be honest, um, I've been in the church since I was born, okay? And I still read words like these, and I'm still uncomfortable. But let me say a couple things first. It could be tempting in the midst of this moment to perhaps ignore downplay, dismiss, perhaps even reject Jesus' words. And I'll say a couple reasons why. Uh, one of the reasons is in our current cultural moment, our culture would say this, if anything makes us feel guilty, it needs to be immediately rejected. But I think context is really helpful here. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus relates to those who are even the most morally outcast, and he welcomes them in. In fact, it's actually quite remarkable. It's the religious that don't like Jesus most frequently. And it's those that are the most on the margins morally that actually are drawn to him. There's something about Jesus that at one level is safe and yet not safe. He is one that is full of grace and truth. And what I mean by that then is this. When Jesus says really hard things, it's for your good. When Jesus says really hard things, it's because he's for you. And the whole point of this passage right here is Jesus does not want great spiritual ruin to be the end of your life. But second, I think one of the reasons why we struggle with this, a passage like this is because we don't understand the nature of sin. Um, we tend to, at times, downplay it. 
we tend to say things like, this is just who I am, or, well, I may be bad here, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But let me suggest this. Um, sin is this. Sin is substituting yourself in the place of God. It's putting yourself at the center. That's the essence of sin. And let me suggest to you that that leads to great ruin. And we know this in our lives practically. So think, if you're a company and you put profit at the center, and that's the bottom line, what, what does that lead to? It unravels things. You make choices that hurt your employees. You make choices that subverts the environment, right? Like we know when you put things at the center that it unravels. Or think about this. If you're, if you're a mother or a father and you put your career at the center and that's what's most important and you orbit around that, then what happens? You end up choosing that over your commitments to your family. And then all of a sudden relationships begin to unravel. You see, that is the essence of what's happening here. Jesus is saying the problem of sin in each one of our lives is that your life is going to unravel. So here's what it means. <laughs> J.C. Ryle once put it this way. He and sin must quarrel if he and God are to be friends. Jesus, with these words, is saying that to follow him means to deal ruthlessly with our sin. You know, he uses the language of dismemberment, not literally, but figuratively, to get the point across that whatever pain we have to endure in this life regarding sin, to turn from it, it's worth it. To put it in Jesus' words, to not end up in hell, but actually enter life. Uh, I remember early on when we moved to Madison, um, there was a young, single guy struggling with pornography. And I remember um, he was living in a one-bedroom, single apartment downtown. And I remember it was, it was passages like these and others where he did a couple things. One is he uh, went from a smartphone to a flip phone. And he worked at a tech firm but he literally handed his laptop to a friend every day because he knew he couldn't handle it going home. And then he also invited other people in his life to pray for him, to give counsel, to provide accountability. But this wasn't something to be done alone. But listen, that's, that's one example, and that may not relate to you, but let me ask each one of us, do you know what displeases Jesus in your life? Do you know what it is? Do you know those things? And are you dealing ruthlessly with it? Jesus, at the end of this section, brings the image of salt. Again, it's very evocative, but verse 49, Jesus says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. And that sounds pretty strange, right? But that's in reference back to the book of Leviticus, which I'm sure you've all memorized by now. Um, there's, a, there's a part where they're offering sacrifices, and it says that each one of the sacrifices needs to be salted before they offer it. 
And commentators know that, in essence, this is saying this, is that as you follow Jesus, it is going to be painful at times. But that is to remove the dross. It is to remove the impurities. That's actually the very notion that you're following him, is that there's actually, in some level, like there's sacrifice, there's pain. It's not easy. And then Jesus says this about salt. In verse 50, it says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Um, You know, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have refrigerators, right? They used salt as a preservative. And so, in one way or another, Jesus is saying, those who follow me are to be very distinctive in the way they live. Very distinctive. They are, in some sense, to be a preservative in this world. And that is what we are called to be in this world, to follow Jesus, to be a preservative. It is to live very distinct lives, not in judgment of those outside, but in following Jesus, saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus. That's what it leads to. You know, it's actually interesting, at the end of the section, you'll notice it says, be at peace with one another. And isn't it interesting that the contrast, at the very beginning, disciples are arguing And don't you see what's happening there? Jesus is actually saying, following him as you self-deny and not self-promote, as you don't compare, but as you rejoice, as you put off those things that displease Jesus and put on him, it actually creates a community that lives at peace with one another. That's a little distinct from this world, right? Lastly, Jesus addresses divorce and marriage. And this may seem a little bit out there, but this is very intentional because the path to denying self actually enters in in marriage. And what Jesus is saying is actually very astounding. The the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, they say, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And they say, well, Moses permitted it. And then in verse 5, Jesus, Jesus responds this way. He says, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. And what's really interesting is to think about this way. Um, you know how when you put up bumpers in the bumper lane when you're bowling, so you don't go in the gutter, right? doesn't mean you're going to be a great bowler, right? You could still strike out multiple times, but it protects you from, you know, utter ruin, right? In other words, this is in essence what Jesus is saying here. Divorce was kind of the, the runners, those, those bumpers. Because when divorce happened, or if it wasn't permitted, oftentimes it would leave the wife destitute. It's actually a protection, It was a way of protecting those who were most vulnerable. But take note, it wasn't just permission. Like, hey, just get divorced, no big deal. It was a protection. And then Jesus, he continues in verses 6 and 7 to talk about marriage. He says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, but not man separate. Um, listen, there are a lot of implications to this passage, but let me just share a couple. The first is, is that notice that Jesus, he grounds marriage in creation. In other words, marriage was not something that was thought up by a philosopher. Marriage was not something thought up by a government. Marriage is something that was grounded actually by God himself. He ordained it. And here, here it is. In all its glory, male and female. Till death do us part. But secondly, Jesus is not saying here, he does say that, excuse me, that, that divorce is permissible. He makes provision for it. Uh, at the very end, he relates it to adultery. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul will talk about abandonment. So there are places and times where it is permissible. But lastly, I'll just say this. The whole point of this passage in the context is to say the path in marriage is one of denying self. That's what it means. It's not self-fulfillment. It's denying self. Uh, a while back, I was talking to my mom. And uh, she was married to my dad for 40 plus years. Um, he died back in 2013. And it's interesting, after you lose your dad and you have conversations with your mom about their marriage, you know, you grew up in it, right? You see it on display. It was one of those marriages where it's just, it was... It was amazing. Not perfect. But you saw them serve and love one another. And um, one of the things my mom shared with me that was that uh, early on it was not that way. Uh, Myers-Briggs. People say most frequently, if you're going to have a marriage, you have to have at least one letter in common. If you don't, you might be completely like, it may not end well, Right? My parents had no letter in common, completely the opposite. And quite honestly, my mom found herself trying to reshape my dad in her image. And then she got a book. And by the way, the, the t you know, this is one of those books right, like where the title just kind of like says it, right? Like, like this is what, anyway. And the book was called Lord Change Me, okay? That was the name of the book. And the point was not to necessarily mean that you condone or agree with everything your spouse does. But it meant this. In the midst of the marriage, it, it meant for her, Lord, change me so that my reactions and my responses to my husband honor you. And let me tell you what, that flipped the script for them. Husbands, wives, do you realize what that means? The path of following Jesus means not, not self-promotion, not self-admission, but self-denial in service to one another. Listen, uh, we've seen it all. Relationships, they change us. Jesus is showing us clearly that a relationship with him will turn our lives upside down. One last thing. Maybe most importantly, the very beginning of this passage, in verse 31, Jesus says this to them. 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. You know, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you know that this is the confounding identity of Jesus, that he is this king with a cross. That, that title, Son of Man, comes from uh, the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is this uh, towering figure who's given dominion and power. His kingdom will never end. Every nation is his. And Jesus says, that's me. But then he says, my way leads to a cross. His way is not self-advancement. Jesus' way is not self-promotion. It is a voluntary path of humble service to you. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul would put it this way, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The jaw-dropping news, the jaw-dropping good news is that he did this for you and for me, for our sin, that he took it, that he paid it, and that we might actually be enabled and empowered to live a new life. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, can I just be clear with you real quick? You do not follow Jesus so that you'll be accepted by him. This is something you receive. And listen, when you see him laying down his life for you, if you really understand, the only thing you can do is to leave a life of gratitude in response to him and following him. One last thing. For those of you who are following him, um, this past Thursday I was hanging out with some other pastors and um, I was driving back and when you're preparing for a, a message, you know, frequently your thoughts immediately go to the text is whatever you're doing. And, and, and I'm driving back and I'm evaluating my heart, I'm evaluating my inclinations and I sat there and I realized, man, I sat in that meeting and I could just see myself comparing. I could see a level of ambition I mean, you know, I made it look good if there's anything that was there, right? But I saw it in my heart. I got back to my office, and I just journaled for a moment. I wrote something like this. I am discouraged, for yet again I am struggling with the same thing I have always struggled with. And then, once again, I had to go to Jesus again. And here's why. I just said, please forgive me and make me new. And here's what's wonderful. Do you realize in this passage, the disciples don't get it. They aren't living this way yet, right? They don't get it. They are in process, and they won't. But does that dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem and dying for them? It will not. Do you know that love? If you know that love, 
then you can follow him and you can rely on him for he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this revelation of who you are and what you've done in your person and work of your son, Jesus. Would you give us grace and help us, Lord, to put this following into the very warp and woof of our life? Lord, the things that you were doing in the midst as we were listening, would you bring fruit to bear? Lord, shape us and mold us to be a people that reflect you to one another and reflect you to the city. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.